Okay, so would you stand in reverence to the reading of God's Word, Matthew chapter 5? Don't we love God's Word? Listen, anything that's going on in life right now is not as important as this. Not my words, but God's Word. Verse 17, Jesus says this of Matthew 5, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, brothers and sisters, we've covered verse 21 through 33 uh, through 32. Now let's look at verse 33, continuing on with what Jesus meant from those statements. Verse 33, again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, For it is the city of the great king, nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of the evil one. Verse 38, for you have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your garment also. And whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? But if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Would you pray over this text? Thank you. For your word. And for us as God's people, there are so, this this chapter, there are so many errors that God's people, or so called God's people at that moment that he's speaking to, were claiming that your word said that your word did not say, twisting, manipulating God's word so that the traditions of men the philosophies of men, could be accepted. God, strip us of this. Reveal to us where we have added to God's word, where we have manipulated God's word for our own selfish ends. Reveal pride and sin and a lack of humility, an exaltation of self, a love of self over God and neighbor. Reveal to where we've loved our own way instead of loving others, where we've loved our idols. So God, help us in this text. What a glorious text this is. We get confused by it. What does it mean to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect? That's discouraging. But in context, it's a great encouragement. We need your help. Holy Spirit, only you can unveil this shine light on it, help God's people understand this. And if there's someone here today who's never repented of their sinfulness, placed faith in the finished work of the cross, today can be their day. Today, you may be calling them. Today, may they trust you. May they follow you in believer's baptism. May they start a life of following your commandments. Help. And God's people said, Amen. So we are now, this is uh, sermon number five on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Jesus is the king of the mountain. He's the king of our life. 
And I've been, this whole time I've been calling this repentance and because really their repentance is this idea of I'm turning to God from sin. And one of the sins they were doing in this whole text that we see is they were adding to God's word. Jesus was bringing correction about what the religious elite, what the traditions of men were saying. Jesus was correcting it. All through the text he's been correcting it. And he's been correcting it with the Old Testament. He's been correcting it with the moral law of God. He's been correcting it now with some case law. He's already been correcting it with what he said about divorce. Jesus is going back to the Old Testament. We Just so we all know, we don't unhitch from the Old Testament. It's still God's Word. If you're not studying the Old Testament and, and the New Testament, if you're not studying both of these, we're really missing out on the fullness of what God's trying to teach us. Also be leery of those who say, um, who present a God who is infantile and junior high-ish in some sense in the Old Testament. That's not true. They're not studying things in context. But a couple of things I want to point out. So thus far we have talked about um, what God's Word has said in the Old Testament regarding such things as the moral law. We looked at, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at what, had to, what God had to say in verse, what Jesus had to say in verse 21 through 26 about anger. Right? We looked at what the Scripture said. They thought anger was only something you did physically, but Jesus comes in and says, wait a minute, you missed a whole bunch of Old Testament texts. That ain't, actually, there's, it starts at the heart, and there's nothing okay with murder of the heart. And we see here in verse 27 through 28, we see that Jesus had pointed out to them that you should not commit adultery, but actually, when you lust, you're committing adultery already in your heart. This was, not, this was something new to them, but really not new to the Old Testament. So over and over, Jesus is bringing correction. We looked at last week, he brings correction to what they think about divorce. They had this uh, no-fault divorce system that they had instituted and claimed it was from God. Jesus takes them back to Genesis and says, no, that's actually not how God created it. Now go back to verse 17. Jesus says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. When you're, if you are someone who has a Jewish heritage background, you understand When he says the law and the prophets, he's talking about all of the Old Testament. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. That word fulfill has the idea of filling up, and that idea of filling up has the idea of not only was he, uh, did he perfectly obey God's commandments all throughout the scriptures, all throughout the Old Testament. He only perfectly fulfilled, but he perfectly taught. Perfectly fulfilled, obeyed, but perfectly taught. So if you want to really want to know, what does God think about marriage and divorce? Well, look what Jesus says. He correctly interprets God's authorial intent in Genesis chapter 2. So we see this over and over. Now Jesus is making correction to the religious people. Isn't this interesting? The religious people have to be corrected. That's a sad, that's a sad day when that has to happen. Just as a side note, not everybody on YouTube, not everybody that publishes a book, not everybody preaches from a pulpit, not everybody that has a seminary degree, not everybody who's been signed off on is someone that we need to listen to. It's just true. God's word. What were these people doing here? The religious elite, the people that, that the common person would think that person knows, did not really know God's word, had twisted it. See, God holds us accountable. God holds us accountable to the word of God. One of the things that has made um, the Reformation, we've talked about it quite a bit in our church, so uh, amazing was that there was a lot of translating that happened. Do you know that there's been a lot of work happened that you and I could have this in our hand? I mean, in most of our homes, honestly, it gathers lots of dust. And, but, but people have given blood to make sure there's a copy. You know, God's people in ancient times, most of the time you didn't have a copy of God's Word. At the most, you'd hope to just get to hear it audibly. So now Jesus comes in and he corrects. He's already corrected what they thought about adultery. He's already corrected what they thought about murder. He's already corrected what they thought about divorce and marriage and remarriage. Now he goes into something that seems small, but it's kind of big. Go to verse 33. Remember, Jesus fulfills this. He perfectly teaches on it. He perfectly lived out the law and the prophets. He is the ultimate prophet. Verse 33, Jesus says this. Again, You have heard the ancients were told. So he's quoting from some of their belief. And here's the interesting thing. He's quoting scripture. He's quoting, but what he's going to get at them is 
their incorrect interpretation of that scripture. This is what he's trying to get at. He's really calling them to repent. He's really calling them to have a change of heart and change of mind in the end. He's really calling them on, let's look at what God has truly said, not what you've done to add to my word. So look at verse 33. Again, you've heard it said that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. Now here's the interesting thing. That is actually true. You see in the Old Testament that God is not against vow keeping, or vow taking, or taking an oath. If you're taking notes, just for time's sake, we won't turn there, but if you're a note taker, you could write down Genesis chapter 22 and verse 16. You could write down Deuteronomy 23 verse 21, that, that God makes oaths, right? You remember Abraham? Did God not make an oath and promise to Abraham that from you I will build a great nation? God makes oaths and vows. If you're married, do you not remember the marriage vows, right? Before God and these assembled witnesses, do you promise to love and to cherish, right? So vows intrinsically aren't bad. When there's an agreement, a covenant, vows aren't bad intrinsically. Nothing wrong with those. God's not against those. Ecclesiastes 4 says that if you make a vow to God, just don't defer to pay up. God's not against vows. That's not intrinsically what's being said here. What was happening, Jesus makes a correction to their interpretation of Scripture. And what they basically did is they took God's Word and found creative ways to disobey it. They took God's Scripture and found creative ways to disobey it. We do this all the time. We do this now. Be careful of the books you read because there's a lot of books out right now that are creating, that have found creative ways to twist God's word to justify all sorts of lifestyles that are not in accord with what God has said all over. So look in verse 34. So Jesus says this, But I say to you. Now when Jesus says, I say to you, he's not saying, Thou shalt not make false vows. You shall not fulfill your vows to the Lord. He's not saying that's wrong. What he's saying is your interpretation of that is what's wrong. Here's what they taught. They taught if you make a vow or a promise, but you don't use God's name, then, it's, then, then it doesn't really count. Okay? There's an escape door hatch here, right? So if you make a vow and a promise, but you didn't do it in God's name, you're okay. There even was a, they even, man, they were so crazy how far they would twist and maneuver God's word. They would even, if you'll hold your place in Matthew 6, look in Matthew 23, they even had another um, kind of trap door, escape door clause. In Matthew 23, in verse 16, Jesus says to the religious elite, the scribes and Pharisees, he calls them hypocrites. He says in Matthew 23, verse 16, woe to you. By the way, if God ever says woe to you, that's not a good thing. You blind gods who say whoever swears by the sanctuary, that is nothing. But whoever swears or thinks swears, take an oath, a vow, by the gold of the sanctuary is obligated. So Jesus is getting at them and saying, you're blind. Woe to you. How dare you? Judgment's coming on you. You, you say that, it, that an oath is... If it's made to the gold, then you're obligated. But to the sanctuary that the gold lies on, it doesn't mean anything. He says, you fools, you blind men. For which is more important, the gold or the sanctuary that sanctified the gold? He just says, you can't create these little distinctions of disobedience to God's word, saying, well, 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 well. If you don't promise in God's name, it's not really a vow. Or you make a promise, a vow, an oath, but you do it to the you don't do it to the gold, but just the sanctuary, then it, God doesn't hold you accountable to this. This is what they were doing. Look right here in verse 18. Whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. Now, that, Jesus is not saying that's nothing. He's just pointing out this is what they teach. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. They had thought that, well, as long as if you promise on the offering on the altar, then you've got to keep that vow. But if it's on the altar itself, you don't have to keep the vow. You see all these little distinctions? They found ways to twist and manipulate the word of God. And Jesus is calling them to repent of this and actually embrace the full teaching of God's word. Jesus comes and fulfills it. He not only lives it, but he perfectly teaches on it. If you want to know what, what to really believe about something, what has Jesus said? It says this. You blind men, verse 19, which is more important, the offering or the altar which sanctifies the, which sanctifies the offering? Verse 20, 
Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and everything on it. Verse 21, and whoever swears by the sanctuary swears both by the sanctuary and by him who dwells within it. Anybody got an idea who dwelt within the tabernacle and temple? There you go. Sunday school answer. Verse 22, and whosoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits on the throne. Go back to Matthew 5. So Jesus, in our text, he is correcting their manipulation of what God has said about vow keeping so that they can basically make a vow but not really pay up if they can make some... For them, it was, well, if I, if I promise on the tabernacle but not the gold, then it's okay. Or if I make a promise but I don't do it by the Lord's name, it's okay. It would be the equivalent of here of saying, well... The, the preacher in our marriage vows didn't say before God and these assembled witnesses. He just said, do you promise to love, cherish, honor? But he never said God's name. So uh, technically, I don't have to obey this marriage, right? And so, you know, goodbye. All right, that, that would be the idea. So he goes on and he says this. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool is his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. He's basically pointing out, <laughs> they would say, well, you can make a promise by heaven, but as long as you didn't do it by God's throne, it's okay. And he says, no, 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 no. Heaven, his throne, Jerusalem, he's the king of it all, right? There's, there's no way you can get out of this. Don't twist and manipulate God's word to get God's word to say what you wanted to say. Verse 36, nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, and let your statement be yes, yes, and no, no. Anything beyond these is of the evil one. Notice, some people go, well, this means you can never make a vow or an oath. No, like if you're married, I would encourage you to keep that vow, right? Most assuredly, I would encourage you to, and God expects you to keep that vow. If you've made a promise or an oath, if you if, if you're in a contract, let's say you have a business and you're in some kind of contractual relationship with somebody else and there's a goods and services that you promised to somebody. No, you should actually come forward with that, right? But what we're talking about here in the text is this idea of anytime you have to prove that you're actually going to tell the truth here by going, no, 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 for real, right? I promise on such and such. This is when we get into trouble. Actually, Ought not be an uncommon thing that God's people, if we say we'll do something, that means we'll what? We'll do it, right? Our yes is our yes, and our no is our no. So the encouragement that Jesus is making is they took this vow thing to go so far because the character was untrustworthy. Jesus is correcting their misinterpretation and setting ourselves up to ask some hard questions. For instance, for us, how good is our word? You ever ask that, how good is our word? I think this is one of the hardest things in life is it's so easy to lie to people. It's so easy to manipulate people, especially in the younger years, that the idea is if you can get away with it just a little bit, if you can get away with a little lie to this teacher or a little lie to the, your parents or your grandparents or these little lies and that no one ever catches you, then God must be okay because you never got caught. And then you go on this kind of cycle, right? None of us know about those years, do we? How good is your word? How good is your word? When, when, you, when we say we'll do something, do we actually follow through on what we said we would do? So this is this idea. He's just correcting their false interpretation of, of oaths and vow making. Now I want to illustrate something. Um, when you're looking at what Jesus has said here, he is referring back to the Old Testament. And we've got in the Old Testament the moral law, the civil law, the ceremonial law. Right? Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the ceremonial law. He is the perfect sacrifice. But you find this. All of Israel's, this is about 10 years ago, um, just studying the Old Testament, one day it was like a light bulb came on in, in my mind. In reading the Old Testament and looking at the different laws that God had for Israel, I started to see a rhythm that every one of these things was actually founded somewhere in the Ten Commandments, right? That, that the Eighth Commandment actually informed how they did these different things in Israel, right? The Ninth Commandment, when it comes to lying. The Eighth, when it comes to adultery. That, like all the 
all the sexual code ethics that, that you see all through like Leviticus 19 finds its genesis in the root system, the root system of the Ten Commandments. Now, um, several years ago, someone was pointing out to me this idea that, you know, in a lot of forest areas, that, it's, that most of the trees are actually interconnected. There's a root system underneath that connects everything. Or when it, when it comes to grass, there's a root system underneath that you can't see but connects everything that you see at the surface. So even this, the commands of God, the Ten Commandments of God, are undergirding everything that's going on right here, right? So, so even for us, and even here, the root system of God's moral law is undergirding everything. So when Jesus gets in here, like for instance, this idea about false vows, lying about it, where would that find its root system? In the ninth commandment, right? Why would you actually do the vow that you've made? Because you're not a liar. Why? Because God's not a liar. So he calls us to be truth tellers, right? That's the root system. We even keep going to these next ones. We'll look at the next two commandments. You find the root system of the law as well. I I would actually kind of give you this idea that the root system of verses 38 through the rest of the chapter, the root system would really be the last six commandments of the Ten Commandments. When you look at the Ten Commandments, you've got the first four. And the first four are really about loving who? God. And the last six are really about loving who? Yeah, others, neighbor, right? That's really, when they ask Jesus, what's the greatest law, right? He says, love God, love others, right? All the law is summarized in this. All the laws that God had for Israel was an extension of his love. By the way, here's how the deal. To obey the six commandments of loving others predicates on first, what? The first four. If the first four are there, then the next six will be there. If the next six aren't there, it's because the first four aren't there, right? That's the, the key to it. By the way, you may be going like, man, there's no way I can keep any of those things. Yeah, I know. That's why we need Jesus, right? He was the one who perfectly fulfilled it. This is why I needed Jesus at 16. God convicted me of my sin, showed me I couldn't save myself. That's why I needed a Savior. And now when I obey the commandments today, like, for instance, the motivation for man today to fight against lust, right, is the commandment of thou shalt not commit adultery. And what is the motivation behind that? The motivation is I've been saved by Jesus. He has died for that sin. I can say no to sin and yes to God. You're motivated. You're not earning your righteousness. You're motivated by it. What is the, what is the reason we would actually tell the truth today? Not because we're trying to earn our righteousness before God. I've already known that at age 16. God revealed to me I couldn't earn my own righteousness. Only he was righteous. So we see in the text, he uh, goes down to verse 38, starts a new paragraph. Paragraph 5 of this chapter, and he says this. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, the interesting thing is, he's once again, he's quoting from what? Old Testament. This is scripture. He's quoting from it. But notice he says this. You have heard it said. He's once again going to give them some correction about what they were thinking about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So one of the things that their rabbis taught, one of the things that they had manipulated God's word is they took this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth as this idea of, guess what? If someone's done something wrong to you, get personal vengeance on them. God said it was okay. Hey, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. That means if someone did you wrong that you had every right to personally do them wrong back. Now, let's just take a step back and let's act like we're not Christians. Wouldn't that feel good at the front end, right? Have you ever been there where you're just like, yeah, I know, man, how awesome would that be, right? Oh, you you did this? Oh, well, watch how much I can trump you on that one, right? I'm just going to come after you. You ever, are are y'all so holy that you've never wanted to just retaliate on somebody? Are are we, okay, okay. So here was their thought. Get this. Their religious leaders were teaching eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Someone does you wrong, you can do them wrong back. <laughs> Could you imagine a society like that? How that would be, that would be insane. Now watch what Jesus does in verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist the evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. 
Now, you might be going like, oh, man, I don't like where this is going. (laughs) So Jesus perfectly fulfills the law. Not only does he perfectly live it in obedience, but he perfectly does what? Teaches it. So when Jesus comes in and says what what he's getting at is not the idea of eye for eye for tooth for tooth. That is true. But when God said that, when that was given to Israel, that was for judicial civil law, right? That was for case law legislation. It was, in, it was when there were proper witnesses and there was proper, uh, the, the proper justice, right? It was a justice thing where if you did wrong, here is what the punishment and crime, that the, the punishment fits the crime. That's what eye for eye, tooth for tooth meant. It was a civil legislation. It was not meant to take it and go, aha, well, I'm going to get back at you, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. No, that was something for a judge to use to go, what would be the appropriate punishment in this? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, right? In Israel's Old Testament law, if you murdered somebody, what was the punishment for that? Death, right? Because life is precious. So there is an appropriate civil punishment for that. Now, hold your place in Matthew 5, and let's just look at a couple scriptures, just so you know I'm not making this up. Deuteronomy chapter 19. Deuteronomy chapter 19. And look in verse 15. Deuteronomy 19. Look in verse 15. By, by the way, just a side note. This is free. Free. You know what's one of the problems with our society? If we would only read God's word, things would be so crazy. I'm telling you. Right now, here's what we've done. No longer is it required for more than one witness to accuse somebody. If I've got access to Twitter, I can make every accusation I want in the world. And if it gathers enough support and goes enough viral, then the person I accuse is guilty. Not because there were two or three witnesses, as the scripture talks about, just because someone made an accusation. You are now guilty, right? You're not innocent until proven guilty. You're guilty and Till proven innocent. You understand this idea? Where do we get that idea? We get that from God's law. Now, look at this. Verse 15. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. At the mouth of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be established. Right? How do you actually make sure that you're not falsely accusing somebody? Right? Not just one witness, two or three. How different would the gossip of our social media world be if you needed a confirmation of two or three. Yeah. We even, I mean, have you ever thought, let's just, you can say, oh, me or amen. Do you not think social media is just out of control at this point? Any warrior with a keyboard can say whatever they want. That's because people don't obey the law. You can't just make accusations. There's witnesses. And by the way, keep looking. If a, malicious, if a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, that both the men who have the dispute shall stand before Yahweh, before the priest and the judges. Notice we're not dealing with personal vengeance here. Who will be in the office in those days? And the judges shall inquire thoroughly. And behold, if the witness is a false witness, and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he had intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. And the rest will hear and be afraid and never again do such an evil thing among you. I mean, God took lying so serious. This is founded on the idea of the root system of commandment number nine. You shall not lie. Now watch what he says in verse 21. Thus, your eye shall not pity, show pity. Lie for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. What this was talking about is how to do proper civil law and proper... Here's the repercussions for what you've done by judges, right? By, we're, we have like a criminal system here. We don't have personal vengeance. Now, what they had done is took God's word, manipulated it, and said, well, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. This means if someone's done you wrong, you go ahead and get back at them and get all you can. God's okay with vengeance. Do this. Go over to Exodus chapter 21. Exodus, that's just two books over. Exodus 21. I'll show you another portion of scripture. Exodus 21. If you haven't read your Old Testament in a while, hey, here you go. You're welcome. 
Verse 22 of Exodus 21. And if men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury, he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband will set for him, and he will pay as the judge decides. Right? So we see some judicialness here. Right? But if there is any further injury, then you shall pay life for life. By the way, we wouldn't kill babies if we were obeying God's law. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, bruise for bruise, wound for wound. But in referencing that, you got to go back to verse 22. Shall pay as the judge decides, right? The husband can set the, the price, but the judge decides. The judge decides what, what's right in this matter. But the judge is using the law of Moses, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. So this, this whole text that Jesus is getting back in Matthew 5, it has this idea of not personal vengeance. That's what they love, personal vengeance. Take revenge. Do what you want. It'll feel good. By the way, you may, we may be thinking, you know, Nick, well, I don't do personal vengeance, really. I heard one, sometime, one time someone had said to me, well, here's how I don't get angry at people. I take a boxing class, and what I do is I imagine that when I'm hitting that punching bag, I'm hitting that person. So I actually never hit the person, but in, their, in my mind, I'm hitting them. So I think God's okay with that. I'm like, that's exactly what Jesus is talking about right here. Manipulating God's word to fit our standards. We don't bring God down and say, God, you accommodate us. We accommodate him. American Christianity I'm just telling you, American Christianity is this idea of you need to get me. You need to accommodate me, God. That's American Christianity. Now keep looking. So we know properly this is what he's talking about. Not this idea of personal vengeance, doing what you want. So then before I read the text and you get all astounded, I want you to turn over to Proverbs chapter 25 and verse 21. Proverbs 25 and verse 21. What has God's word said about personal vengeance? If someone does you wrong. It says in Proverbs 25 and verse 21, if your enemy is hungry, do what? No, it says your enemy, not your friend, your enemy. And if he is thirsty, do what? For you will heap burning coals on his head, and Yahweh will repay you. All right, so now do this. Go over to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. And we'll come back to Matthew 5, Romans chapter 12. Did, by the way, did that not sound familiar to anybody? Did that not sound familiar? that sound like something Paul said in Romans 12? Oh, wait a minute. Maybe Paul was reading his Bible. Maybe Paul was reading Proverbs. Look in Romans chapter 12. We'll start in verse 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Can't do, can't do personal vengeance. Now the law system is there to treat the evildoer and to appropriately be the extension of, of eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But for us, we don't do vengeance back. We, we fight evil with good. So it says in verse 17, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is good in the sight of all men. As, if possible, as far as depends on you, live at peace with all men. Never taking your own, what does it say? Revenge. Now, how does Paul the Apostle interpret this idea that even the rabbis were teaching... Revenge, he says, Beloved, instead, leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 32. Actually, there's more than one place. But look at verse 20. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him to drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Anybody remember just reading that in Proverbs 25? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what? So go back to Matthew 5. Now we're ready to read the rest of Matthew 5 right here. Because it's a tall order. So Jesus, who perfectly teaches the law, says 
No, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth does not give you the right to do personal vengeance. I'm sorry. I don't care what your religious elite leaders have said. I don't care how many degrees they have behind their name. This is not the, author, the, the intent of the author. Here's what you need to do. If someone treats you evil, you treat them good. This is how you fight back. You fight evil with good. People say, does that mean let, let someone just abuse me? No, I would actually say the good for that person. If someone is breaking criminal law, you should actually report them, right? So if you're a wife here today and your husband is beating you, the most loving thing you can do for that husband is report him to law. I would say, actually, if you don't report him, then you're not loving him appropriately. Let the full sword of, of the government in Romans 13 actually deal with the man. Now keep looking. It says this in verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Some have taken this as abuse is okay. That's not what this is talking about. It's an insult, okay? It's kind of like this. If you spit at me, if you spit in my face, that's a pretty offensive thing, isn't it? It would be the equivalent of, you spit on my right cheek, I'll turn to you the other one also. It was a, it was, it was a slap, but it was more, that was how they would actually appropriate um, a way of being offensive to you, right? So this slapping on the right cheek, turn to the other also, is this idea of, you treat me evil, I'm going to treat you good. I'm going to fight evil with good. And in fact, God will get vengeance on this. I will do this in such a way that, that God will, I will leave space to God's wrath to bring conviction to you. Look what he says in verse 40. If anyone wants to see you and take your tunic, let him have your garment also. That's really tough, isn't it? Will you're willing to suffer loss, even if someone tries to take you to court? Verse 41, this is this idea of someone from the military forcing you to help them carry their pack. And whoever forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. So Jesus corrects their misinterpretation of personal vengeance and says, actually, don't get personal revenge. Give personal grace. So here's the deal. Is anybody treating you bad? Is anybody doing you wrong? How do you fight that? You do good. You do good back to them. And you give space to the wrath of God that he can actually do something with that, right? Do we trust God enough that he actually is holy enough to measure out his own vengeance? Can we put that in the hand of God? By the way, I'll give you something else that's free. Hold your place in Matthew 5 and look at James 1. James 1. I just want to show you this one thing about vengeance. This will take you so far. So we may be here today and we're thinking to ourselves, well, Nick, I don't ever get vengeance on people. Well, hang with me. It was really interesting. Look at verse 20. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Does everybody see that? The anger of man does not work God's righteousness. So here's one of the things I've discovered about us. We might go like, I don't take personal vengeance on anybody. And then I go, well, I don't know. Actually, I think we do a lot of times when we communicate with people. We actually are trying to get God's vengeance the way we communicate. Because if you look at verse 19, I think this is interesting. Know this, my beloved brothers. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. You ever notice this is where I think it's so subtle. We try to get vengeance on each other by how we communicate with each other. I'll give you an example. And by the way, this happens to none of us in here. I completely understand this. Have you ever been in a genteel conversation with somebody and that genteel conversation gets a little elevated? Been there? Been there, done that? Here's what usually happens in that moment. You know, right? Someone gets louder, then the other person gets louder. The other person gets louder, and they're thinking, if I can just overpower you with either my volume or now my awesome persuasion, you'll at some point just go, you know what, you're right. And what's happening in that moment is this. Instead of being swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, that would be someone who really trusts God. We're doing the distrustful thing and getting personal vengeance and going quick to anger, quick to open up our mouth, 
And lastly, we'll listen. You want to have have the best, you want to revolutionize every relationship in life, revolutionize every relationship in life, and really trust God that we don't have to get vengeance and thus go against God's law? Try doing this. We got two of these and one of these, right? If you listen well, you'll speak well, and you'll stop yourself before you get to an unrighteous anger. Instead, you'll trust God. And here's how we communicate most of the time. Quick to anger, quick to speak, slow to listen, really to be swift to hear, slow to speak, right? Then we won't be angry. That's actually the key to good communication is really being a good listener. But the key to good communication is that we're actually a person who's not a commandment breaker. We're not trying to get personal vengeance. And we know this. Have you ever noticed that anytime you're in another genteel conversation, have you ever noticed that while the person's talking, if you're really not listening, what are we really doing? We're thinking of the rebuttal. We're just waiting till they take a breath. I mean, do it next time that happens. I mean, it's probably never going to happen. Y'all love Jesus so much. I get it. But the next time that happens, you'll notice you're just waiting for that person to take a breath. Then, bam, you're right in. What happens if we trust God enough to actually listen well, do them well? Now, keep looking. We're going to go to verse 43. And this ties in together. You've heard that it said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Don't you wish that was true? But that's actually not. It's a misquote. So their religious rabbis, their tradition was saying, okay, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. That's actually a misinterpretation, a misquoting, a misunderstanding of God's word. That's what the religious were teaching them. Jesus, who perfectly fulfills the law, says, but I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute. Now, I've heard people before say, hey, Jesus comes in and helps them reinterpret the law that that it was okay to hate your enemy, and that was not the truth. Jesus was correcting what they were already teaching that was wrong. So here's their teaching. They would say, well, a neighbor is anyone who's an Israelite. So if you're not an Israelite, then you're not my neighbor, and thus you're my enemy, and I can hate you. So if you're a Gentile, you're outside of Israel, I can hate you, it's okay, God has said it's okay. But really, well, what does God's word say about that? Hold your place there and look at Exodus chapter 22. So people walk on, so people think that Jesus comes up and gives them, he's the perfect teacher, but he's not telling them something that God hadn't already told them in the word. They had just so twisted God's word that they weren't willing to submit to what it had to say. So they were being taught, you can hate your enemy if that enemy is outside of Israel. Your neighbor is only an Israelite. But look what what Exodus 22, 21 says. You shall not mistreat a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Kind of looks like you've got to have a positive disposition of someone outside of Israel. Go down. Look in verse 23, verse 4 through 5 of Exodus. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. This is someone even within Israel. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. Even if your enemy is, you actually still look after the livestock of your, who would be your enemy. Go to Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus 19 and verse 9 through 10. Leviticus 19, the next book over, 19, 10. Actually, we'll start in verse 9. Now, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field. Neither shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. You were supposed to, when you did harvest, to leave the edges of the field so that the poor could come in and had some way to be sustained. Nor shall you glean your vineyard, which means take all the vegetation out. Nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of the vineyard. If, is as you were plucking your crops, if some fell on the ground, you're supposed to leave it there for the poor to come behind. You shall leave them for the afflicted and for the what? Sojourner. Someone outside of Israel. I am Yahweh, your God. Go over to verse 33 through 34. And when a sojourner sojourns with you in the land, this is the same chapter, you shall not mistreat him. The sojourner who sojourns with you shall be to you as the what? Among you, as one of your own Israelites. 
and you shall what? Uh-oh, love him as yourself. As you were sojourners in the land of Egypt, I am Yahweh your God. So go back to Matthew 5. So what Jesus is pointing out to them is, no, once again, you have manipulated God's word to say what you wanted to say so you can justify your sin in living life the way you want to. You've tried to find some technicality, some trapdoor, escape way out of loving everybody. So he says in verse 45, that's not the way. So, so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. So, I'm sorry, go back to verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know what's interesting? When's the last time we prayed for somebody who was doing us wrong? I'm sure we've gotten angry. I'm sure we thought about ways of getting vengeance. When's the last time we actually prayed for them? When's the last time you and someone who had really gotten into another one of your genteel, our genteel conversations, and instead of continuing on to sin against God, what if we stopped at that moment and said, could we just pray for each other? We seem so far from God right now. Verse 45, so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. Verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? You know, a lot of people go, I'll love you if you love me. But he's really saying, like, wait a minute, wait a minute. How have you been loved? See, we can love others because we've been loved by someone and we've been forgiven of so much more. You know, really, when we don't forgive and love others, it's because we really think we really are taking lightly the work of the cross. Verse 47, for even if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Remember, I told you, he's trying to get at this idea that they think that you only have to love your own brothers in Israel. But actually, God's word had said, no, actually, your, this love for neighbor extends not past Israel. This extends outwardly. It's not just local, it's global. I mean, that's why we support missions, right? That's why we give to missions. That's why we pray for people. That's why we care for people. That's why we care for people who live next door and that live across the street and that live down the road and live in the next city because God's word is perfect. God's word has said we love our neighbors. All are our neighbors. Now let's end with this. Look in verse 48. This is a disturbing passage. Look at it. Just if, if there's not a time that you've looked at it, look at this now, right? Look at verse 48. Have you ever read this and thought, man, I don't like that because I just can't do that. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Have you ever read that and thought, I don't know what that means, but there's no way I can do it. Or is that just me? Am I the only person that's ever thought that? Like, what's perfect? How can I be perfect? There's no way. I mean, I'm so imperfect. The very rules I set for myself at 7 o'clock in the morning are the very rules that I'll break myself at 7 o'clock at night. Anybody know what that's like? I break my own rules. How am I going to keep God's rules? I can't even keep my own. Bless my heart. Therefore, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, how are we going to measure this standard? The context. Now, this word perfect has this idea of maturity. And when you compare this to Luke 6.36, parallel passage, you see that Luke says, be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. So what do we understand from this perfect? Is this talking about a sinless perfection that God's people have? No. So, just as you can't keep your own law, yes, it'll be, you won't perfectly keep God's law. But I will tell you this, if we will study God's word, if we will let God's word say what God's word says, if we will check what Jesus has said, who is the perfect fulfillment, what will happen is we'll start to trust the perfect character of God. We'll start to mold our life to the perfect commandments of God. And although we'll never be practically perfect, the way we start viewing life will start to be from the perfection of who the one true God is like. And instead of lying, we'll start to say, wait a minute, God's not a liar. So I have to tell the truth in this manner, no matter what may come. God is holy. Therefore, he set aside a day for God's people to worship. And so, regardless of what man may say or schedule, I'm actually going to give a day to the Lord and his people. Are y'all tracking with me, right? And so, God has said that, that I shouldn't murder. And Jesus perfectly fulfilled this. And so, 
it's actually not okay for me to hate somebody so much that I wouldn't answer a text, make a phone call, pray for them. In fact, maybe I should actually call that brother and we should sit down and try to repent before God and mend the relationship. So be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's not talking about this sinless perfection. It's really referencing this idea that the perfect character of God revealed in the root system of the law undergirds all of our life, and we will continually go back to Jesus, the one who perfectly fulfilled and perfectly taught, and look at the commandments of God from his perspective and be the kind of disciple-maker that God has called us to be. The disciple-maker that God has called us to be is the one that not only obeys but keeps and teaches others to obey his commandments. The Perfect is the person who continually goes back to the word and says, okay, God, I don't like that person, and I want to get back at him. But wait a minute. Your word has said, I fight evil with good, so I will pray, I will feed, I will forgive, I will be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. Now, do you understand what this means, this coming back to the word of God? And what has God said? Now, worship team, make your way up here. Here's one of the biggest dangers that I've discovered in pastoral ministry, in pastoral training. Sometimes, for me personally, I can be so caught up in what others have written and said about God's Word and their interpretations, which these aren't bad, but sometimes you have to stop and go back to God's Word and go, but what has God said? What has Jesus said? He is the perfect teacher. Let God be true and all men liars. Will we, would you stand with me and we'll pray and ask that this message would have its intended purpose on God's people, on us, on me, together. Maybe as we're preparing to sing and take communion later and have a meal, maybe there's something that God is convicting us of repenting of. Maybe there's a way that we've been manipulating God's word. Maybe we've been using the classic Western idea of, I know God's word says this, but this is how I feel. Let's go to the Lord. We need your help. First off, if there's someone here who has never seen their sin, maybe today for the first day they're understanding, I am a murderer because I hate people. I am a liar because I don't tell the truth. I am an adulterer because I lust. I am someone who's dishonored my mother and father because I talk back to him. Maybe there's someone here that realizes today they have broken your holy code. They're liars, adulterers, like all of us. And there's one who perfectly obeyed and who has taken the wrath of God in their place. May today be their day of salvation. And for the rest of us, I am so fearful over our souls that we would not be compromised by the traditions of men, that we would be captivated by Jesus, the perfect teacher of the word of God. May we be captured by your word. May we love it. May we hold close to it. May we write it down. May we be like an Israelite king who was to walk around with it, was to write it, was to love it. May we treasure it. May we be a people after God's own heart because we're people after God's own word. Would you help us in Jesus' name? Amen. Let us sing to the Lord a really great song that David's prepared for us.